0: Next, on Oncofarm: the story of the development of generic lenalidomide. How one company thwarted the Hatch Waxman Act to generate billions of dollars in revenue. Welcome to Oncofarm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I am a professor of pharmacy practice here at the supporting sponsor of Anker Farm, ETSU's Bill Gatton College of Pharmacy. And today, special uh, episode, we have a guest with us, Ryan Beechinor, who is a senior pharmacist at the University of California, Davis uh, Comprehensive Cancer Center. He comes to us, uh, or comes to there, I guess, most recently from UNC, where he did his PGY-1 and PGY-2 training, as well as a fellowship in clinical pharmacology. Before that, pharmacy school at University of California, San Francisco. So, um, And then before that, uh, he spent some time at the Big Ten at Wisconsin uh, learning biochemistry, originally uh, a Massachusetts native from Boston. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Ryan. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure to be
1: on here. I don't know if uh, I will do it eventually, but I always say if I write a book, uh, the title would be Doses Matter, so I appreciate you putting that out in the world.
0: <laughs> well, you that's it's, it's funny that you say that. Um, if you go back and listen to like six years ago, the very first episodes of the podcast when I wasn't really sure what I was doing, I said see you down the road because I the first time I did and I didn't know if this would like stick. Um, and um I you know, I was like, Oh, this this is a good for a pharmacist to kind of sign off with. And I've since come to find out that um I believe he is the the chair. Of like the clinical pharmacy department uh, at the University of Michigan. That's his Twitter handle is Dosing Matters. Ah, so it's, okay. It's actually a great, it's a it's a great uh, you know bio for anybody any pharmacist on social media to put that in yeah. there. So I, I agree with that. I appreciate your sentiment. Uh, and we're here to talk today about about linolethamide and uh, the 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 you know previous in this in your feed for the listener. There'll be one of our foundations episode on linalidomide. We're gonna get kind of into the a little bit more into the business side of things here, so uh, you know Ryan has has been uh, the co-author and lead author uh, on this wonderful paper in the Journal of Cancer uh, Policy about the the development of generic lenalidomide, which I didn't know there was a generic lenalidomide. Um, and when when uh when lenalidomide or a revlimid, as you might know, it was was uh, first approved, it cost six thousand dollars a month, and that was in the early two thousands, mid two thousands. Now it's twenty three thousand dollars a month um more than even inflation being high that's more than inflation That's more than you know the appreciation that you would expect from a house even in in the mid 2000s even with low interest rates houses still haven't gone up uh you know that much um so so ryan you know kind of take us back how did this happen how, do, how does this drug get so expensive
1: yeah so um, and thank you for for letting me sort of babble about my 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 paper. Uh, it was definitely a labor of love, um, and we'll go into when we started way back in 2022 in June. Um, but you know, this story involves a little bit of history, um, some some unethical practices by the makers of thalidomide, um, uh, the the ancestor of uh, lenalidomide, and Billy Joel is involved at one point. So. Uh, buckle up. So, lenalidomide Revlimid um, was approved um, in 2005 uh, for the treatment of DEL5Q MDS, um, and it was approved six months later for um, multimyeloma, but a generic version wasn't available until 2022. And that probably relates to um, the controversy that was surrounded thalidomide um, or thalamid, which is sort of like a precursor to lenalidomide. So, uh, uh, thalidomide was originally synthesized in 1953 by a Swiss pharmaceutical company. Um, and it was introduced in the European and the UK, UK market, um, as, as marketed as a non-barbiturate hip- hypnotic sedative, um, by a German pharmaceutical company it was sold under the brand name, um, Kontergen, And it was widely used, um, throughout the world to treat, you know, um, a variety of, uh, Issues, but it, it's had this um uh you know unlabeled promotion for the treatment of nausea um in pregnant women. And so um in uh in in 1960, um the German pharmaceutical company licensed it to a Cincinnati-based uh, pharmaceutical company called Richardson Merrill. Um, and they said, okay, you know, market this in the United States and we'll let you share our profits. Um, and Dr. Francis Kelsey, um, a Canadian pharmacologist that was, who had recently, um, signed on to the FDA and actually it was her first, um, it was her first full FDA, uh, uh, pharmacology review. Um, and she, it was sort of like happenstance, uh, cause she was the perfect, she was the perfect, uh, FDA employee to review thalidomide. Um, so basically what she said is um, it doesn't really have chronic um, toxicity data and she went back to the company and she you know requested uh, more data and she specifically cited a a, a letter um, that was published by the uh, British medical Journal uh, British Medical journal citing four cases of uh, peripheral neuropathy in patients that prescribed uh, thalidomide and she had some important postdoctoral work um, that informed um, uh, what ultimately she made, the, uh, uh, a connection that she made. So basically she did her postdoctoral work describing some of the embryotic exposure of rabbits to quinine. And, um, and the clinical data that suggests that it can cross the blood-brain barrier and thalidomide is known to do that. And so Dr. Kelsey made the connection, well, if a drug that can cause nerve damage and it can cross the blood-brain bari- bar- blood barrier for a developing fetus, that might be not such a good thing. So she requested more data. And Richardson and Merle uh, were in a, a rush to get it approved because Christmas were, was coming, and who doesn't need uh, their non-barbiturate sedative hypnotic during Christmas? Um, and basically they they refused to release more data because they didn't have it. And so, um, Dr. Kelsey held up the FDA approval and later it came out, um, just actually that, that year, that very year, um, two, uh, physicians, Australian obstetrician and a German pediatrician published letters to the editor about expressing their concern about the teratogenic potential of thalidomide, uh, based on, uh, patients that were, uh, they had treated, um, and they had given birth to babies that were, um, uh, had suffered, um, uh, polydactyly. And so in the years that followed, uh, the teratogenic effects of, um, thalidomide, uh, were confirmed by worldwide observation and in 1961, it was re- withdrawn for the European market. And it it's, it's thought to have affected maybe 10,000 infants globally um, and it's now known as the thalidomide tragedy. And so where Billy Joel gets involved, uh, he wrote this song, we didn't start the fire and in it, um, he has this famous line, Lebanon, Charles de Gaulle, California baseball, stark weather homicide, children of thalidomide. Oh. Um, and so if you, if you ever hear that song, uh, uh, think of the thalidomide tragedies. And so that led to the, um, Keith Hoffer, Ameris, uh, uh, Harris amendment. And basically, um, at the time, the FDA was using this old, very old um, amendment, the, uh, the the Federal Food and Drug and Cosmetic Act of 19, 1938, um, to review both safety and efficacy, and it really didn't speak to efficacy findings. And so for the first time, and it always seems sort of strange in my head that um, a sort of tragedy that was happening based on lack of toxicity data led to a you know efficacy data amendment but nonetheless um so for the first time in history uh the fda requirements for approval were speaking to both efficacy and safety um and so fast forward 50 years or so um in july of 1998 the fda approved thalidomide for the treatment of leprosy and to protect against fetal exposure um they designed a what's what was called the system for thalidomide education and prescribing steps it's now known as the cell REMS program but basically this is a requirement and i'm sure we'll get into it of um, prescribers patients as well as dispensing pharmacies to go through you know these these hoops um, in regards to get uh, getting ac- patients access to thalidomide all
0: right right so, before we get into the okay. REM program a couple a couple of questions and clarifications here so or, or way back, you said that because thalidomide crossed the blood brain bear, I think you mean the placenta. Mm-hmm. Correct, sorry. across the placenta, maybe it crosses the blood brain bear too, but because it crosses the placenta, that was the concern from from Dr. Kelsey. And just because the Kelsey's Travis, the brothers Travis and Jason Kelsey <laughs> have a competing <laughs> podcast, I want to clarify, it's spelled differently, presumably no relation Correct. To, um, to many people's favorite football player these days. Um, if you are a... Um, you are a reader. There was a book last year called *The Passenger* um, by uh, Cormac McCarthy. who is was one of my favorite authors. A lot of his books uh, are actually are based in East Tennessee or West Texas. Um, in this book, there is a, a character who has schizophrenia and has visions. And one of the characters in uh, her visions is called the Thalidomide Kid because of the, you know, the, the flipper arm and flipper leg uh, um, appendage. Uh, And then the last thing, since Billy Joel got involved here with this song, that song is from the 1989 album Stormfront, which means the cover band in Step Brothers, who only plays 80s Billy Joel, uh, could have played that at at the wedding there at the end of Step Brothers, which is one of my favorite movies. Okay. I'm sure that's, yeah. So we get back. So Thalidomide gets approved. It's dangerous. It's approved for um, th- this, uh, some of the skin manifestations of, of leprosy, something that can happen affect anybody of any yeah. age, potentially. So it makes sense that we have a protective program, um, to help prevent the drug from getting in the hands of, of, uh, of women who become pregnant. All right. So, so, so then pick us up there, the thalidomide story, how it gets into myeloma and, and quickly, uh, we, we get into the, the little story.
1: Yeah. And so, and you know, it's not really known at the time. Well, um, it has never come out like whether or not thalidomide was actually effective in women pregnant. I mean, for all I know, like it really snowed them um, and they put it put them to sleep and then they, you know, they they didn't vomit because they were asleep. Um, but lenalidomide comes along and was first synthesized in 1999. So the year after the FDA approval of thalidomide, it's a structural analog of thalidomide. And basically they removed a carbonyl group, um, they added an amino group, And uh, it resulted in a compound that had fewer off-target effects. um, So it avoids some of the toxicity of the parent drug. In fact, um, it had a decreased sedative potential and it was stronger. So basically it had, you know, depending on what reference you're using, 100 to 1,000 times more potent immunomodulatory effects than thalidomide. Um, And it was approved as i mentioned in 2005 for MDS, and and then in uh later in that uh june of 2006 for multiple myeloma and um now in uh in 2021 uh it was reported that medicare spent 5.9 billion dollars on lenalidomide and uh that we were able to access some celgene uh the makers of lenalidomide that have been Bought out by BMS Bristol Myers Um, but we were able to access some um, sales records uh, and revenue streams from um, uh, lenalidomide, and they showed that uh, 10.8 billion dollars in revenue uh, solely from the sales of lenalidomide, and so they accomplished this by two key features: one, a series of price increases. Um, I, I I counted 22 total price increases um throughout this storied history and then two um and, and an array of patents that were specifically designed to keep generic manufacturers from being able to access samples and and if you can't access a sample you can't do a bioequivalence testing so
0: um right let's let's pause right there and, and dig in that so if you have you know so you got a patent on the drug right so there's a patent on the sh- like making lenalidomide, all right? And that right. patent expires and so a generic company could say I'm going to make the same exact chemical entity lenalidomide. It's not one of these big biologics, it's a small molecule, should be relatively easy to synthesize for a, a good quality lab. But to get it on the market as generic, you don't have to say it's safe and effective. You have to say it has roughly the same absorption and excretion in the body compared to the reference drug, right? So how do you compare it to the reference drug? Well, you need to have a verified sample of that. Re- you need to have a control, right? And so where do you get the control? You'd have to get the control from the company. Right. And so without well, that,
1: go on. So, well, Celgene um, uh, did something unique. So there are 17 patents listed in the FDA orange book um for uh for lenalidomide and this is known as patent thicketing um and they had a patent on you know the coating they had a patent on you know the uh the entity and actually there're five patents for um actually well i i, I don't know if it's uh, um they're, they're five but they basically patent the rems program and they said, well, we don't know whether or not um, Mylan or another pharmaceutical company, generic pharmaceutical company, um, is going to adhere to the REMS program, and that's patented. So they refused to sell it to the generic manufacturers because um, it, you know, it was wrapped up in all this uh, litigation um that specifically related to um the the patenting of the rems program so basically they said this is our rems program we have a patented we have a patent for it and we are under no uh, uh jurisdiction to sort of release it to uh the pharmaceutical companies that are to, uh, that would you know go on to um do bioequivalence testing and that resulted in a sort of Uh, litany of litigation. Um, And they basically did that because um, litigation takes time. And every day that you delay the development of a generic,
0: um, you know, is is uh, millions of dollars. I think this is this is really interesting, Ryan, because it's not uncommon for pharmaceutical companies to, you know, to sue generic competitors and to um, to to continue to to kind of exert their market dominance, you know, I think a, a really accessible example is insulin. You know, insulin's like a hundred years old. Well, insulin's like a, an infinity old. but but pharmaceutical prepared insulin is, is over 100 years old. And you know regular insulin is still basically the same, but we have all these um, slight modifications that seem to come out just after, you know, the patent expires and then people feel obligated to use the next best thing, which is maybe just slightly better. Here, we're not talking about the 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 pharmaceutical drug, the dosage form is not getting incrementally better. The patents are not on um a, a safer version of this. They're not on a long-acting version of this. Like that's a really common one. It's like, oh now the immediate release goes off patent. Here's the controlled release or whatever. Um, this is not that this is on the REMS program, which is a very, um, you know, it's not entirely oncology specific, but something that we see a lot of, um, and and deal with are these REMS programs because our drugs are so toxic.
1: Yeah. And so they, they cited that the liability would be too high to sell it to competitors for bioequivalency testing. Um, and you know, they, they cited legislation that said, well, you know, the, the, um, the the FDA lacks the ability to sort of mandate the sa- the sale. Um, but eventually they engaged in, um, uh, settlements, uh, to the tune of $62 million, um, was what, and actually, um, that's, so some settlements are disclosed. Um, that is one of the ones that was disclosed, but they, they probably, um, are, are ongoing, um, settlements, uh, as well as like non-public settlements, but suffice it to uh say 15 parties um who have engaged in litigation to surrounding access to lenalidomide, Um and and thus thus far, um 62 million dollars was in the settlement to my as well as 55 million to a generic uh, pharmaceutical company called Haasfeld. Um now, now eventually in 2022, in October of 2022, it did get um approved as a generic, but the, the makers of, uh, now BMS, um, because, uh, BMS bought Celgene maybe in, t- in 2020, um, they did a unique thing. So basically they capped the market share at, um, you know, generic, uh, uh lenalidomide of, ch- at 20%. And that, um, may seem like a unique feature but basically and that's part of the sort of ongoing litigation so um as a re, you know to resolve the the lawsuits basically any generic pharmaceutical company can only capture 20% of the market share of um you know lenalidomide or revlimid and um that basically disables their ability to to price it um you know at a very cheap price because if they undercut the price of, you know, uh, Revlimid, um, it will sell out immediately, and then they will be market capped uh, for the rest of the year. So, um, you know, and that is ending in 2026. So to my understanding, and to our to, to the Masthead's uh, understanding, um, that is going to end in 2026. And basically, it's going to be free game uh, in 2026. But as we've seen with um, uh, generic manufacturing prices. Um, it takes a while. Uh, it basically takes six, eight to eight months for the price to start creeping down.
0: Yeah. Ryan, you know, tell us more a little bit about this REMS program. You know, if there are, are multiple patents on the REMS program, it must be pretty special. It must be very novel. So, so, t- so walk us through the steps that uh, that all parties have to go through as part of the required participation in this REMS program.
1: Yeah. So, um, and I'll refer the the listenership to the um, the, the the website. Um, you, you know, you can Google lenalidomide REMS program. But basically, um, it's a series of steps that you have to take to ensure that um, you know adult females who can't get pregnant are aren't exposed to the drug. Um, and it also has some steps that um uh, adult males have to do so basically it's a series of paperwork that all of our physicians have to be enrolled in the cell gene rems program um all of our patients have to be enrolled and actually any um dispensing pharmacy has to be enrolled now we cannot dispense um generic and or revlimid um at the uc davis cancer center um uh, because we didn't get access to that and they they closed access um Maybe in the two thousand eight range. So, um, but for any pharmacy, for any dispensing pharmacy, they also have to be enrolled. And basically, it amounts to um, uh, there's no refills allowed on the prescription. Um, When you starting a patient out, um, if there's a series of paperwork that takes maybe three to five business days, Um, and then before taking ledonide, like for instance, the the stipulations of the females who can get pregnant um you have to sign the physician agreement you have to take a pregnancy test 10 to 14 days prior um and again within 24 hours of the first dose you have to agree to um abide by two forms of contraception and they specifically cite um forms uh, you know of adequate contraception um and you have to do a monthly survey um for and basically what you get with a survey is an authorization number what we call the cell gene authorization number, that number needs to match the um, the the number that is generated by um, the physician survey, and that number needs to match with the dispensing pharmacy who also is requiring to do a survey. So basically, um, it's a it's a whole mess, and many of these patients have um, difficulties in maintaining um, their dose density because there can be delays, as you imagine. You know, as a major academic medical center, we do a pretty good job, but but um, we aren't able to keep all of our patients on cycle because, um, you know, of the stipulations of the of the REMS program. And as I can imagine, you know, in a community oncology practice, um, unless you have someone that is specifically dedicated to this work, that may result in 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 patient delays. So um, but basically it's a it's an uh, it's a monthly survey. And all three parties have to do the survey and they have to uh result in the same cell gene program. And 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 you know, most of that would be resolved if you were able to order refills, but essentially um you're you know, the cell gene rems program mandates that refills are not allowed. So basically you have to get a new prescription every month, you have to get a new cell gene authorization number, the patient has to do the survey, and the uh the dispensing pharmacy has to do the survey. So it's a whole it's a whole mess.
0: Yeah, a lot of a lot of. Uh, a lot of barriers to to high to quality um almost um fundamental care that that you <laughs> you've outlined there potential barriers to that um it, it's it's so um it's so interesting to 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 ask what how things may have been different had there never been a thalidomide and this drug had just been studied so many new drugs I mean we go over pretty much every new drug on the podcast and and talk about like in the warnings precautions field I hardly even mention it cause it's so ubiquitous in all these new uh, oncolytics is the risk of embryo fetal toxicity that it's unknown. And even, you know, we assume a lot of times it's like, we assume there's some, there's the potential for it, but we don't know. And there's no REMS program <laughs> and, right. and it's, and, th- and, and, and lilamide is a guilt by association. No one would ever do like pregnancy study of <laughs> lilamide because of what happened with the lilamide. So you assume it's as bad as lilinamide, but we know more about the risks, the potential risks of lilinamide than other drugs. So we have this known risk that every, that's, everyone's well aware of who's ever listened to, you know, we didn't start to fire. Um, and so we have this really restrictive safety practice that is unique in a patient population with a median age of diagnosis of 70 Fifty percent, roughly male, maybe probably more than that. Um, I mean, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of cost going into to protecting people that probably we would do just as good a job protecting them without the RIMS program. And um, it, it it seems to me that somebody could do a, um, a, a you know uh, an IND on on Revlimid on Lilimide and just go the complete full bore regulatory pathway. The way the, the before we had biosimilars, um, what was it? Uh, Zarzio Zarixa, I forget what it was. There was that Phil Graston that came out before there was the biosimilar approval pathway. They, they, oh, yeah. they did like the clinical and safety studies and got their own approval. Um, it's not a generic, it's not a biosimilar, it's like just our own drug. Someone could do the same thing for linamide and say, you know what, we don't think need program. I think I'd be fascinated if somebody tried that for what FDA would say. Uh, because we have so many other drugs that are tritogenic that don't have this this uh, this program.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's, I mean, there's a lot of sort of hand-wringing and, and you know, it, the FDA has to, like, really save face. Uh, but, like, if, if you know, I, I'm part of this ongoing uh, research project that is operated by Cedar sinai um, and we're looking at the difference between uh, centers that can access uh, lenalidomide and centers that cannot – And uh, but continue, there's there's precedent for removing a REMS program. In fact, Procrit used to have a REMS program. And um, I think in in early 2000s, they did away with that because they said, you know, this doesn't make prescribing any safer. And I I would argue that uh, lenalidomide, you know, the Celgene REMS program doesn't make prescribing any safer. In fact, it makes it um, sometimes sometimes. you know uh, unsafe because patients are having issues getting their their revlimid and and it should have been a you know generic maybe uh you know 7 maybe 8 years ago and if if that was the case um they wouldn't be charged with exorbitant prices and you could you could say that more patients would have access um
0: yeah. to uh you know lenalidomide yeah I, and i know the with, with the the procrest story one of two things happened, and um, either one, and I don't rem- I don't remember the rationale behind it. It made a lot of sense to to start the REMS program and then to take it away. I know prescribing changed drastically, right? So either one, FDA said people got it. We did the REMS program for a few years. It fixed it. People now are educated, right? Because that's really what REMS is. Ultimately, is an educational program. Like you have the checks and balances, but really it's to educate everyone on the risk involved. Or two, the makers of Procrit saw how much less money they were making after the REMS program, and and kind of <laughs> pushed for the REMS program to be removed. And really, the the crux of of your paper here is Selgin is uh, seems to be able to keep their patent going longer because of this REMS program. So hopefully, that rationale for Procrit was the former. And that, Hey, we, we now have uh, evidence that people have learned about this. Um, you know, and you certainly can do a lot of RIMS programs have like the one-time training program that prescribers go through. Seems like that would be sufficient here. Yeah, I agree. Okay, Ryan, uh, before we finish you know, this is, uh, you know, a lot of the papers that I read are, you know, pharmacist, pharmacist, physician, you've got, uh, two pharmacists, you've got, a, you got a physician, an oncologist, you've got, uh, a professor, a, a a law program you've got a patient advocate uh, who's a cancer patient so tell us kind of the origin story behind this uh superhero paper
1: yeah um so you know it was it was definitely a, a labor of love i mean journal no of cancer policy i won't i won't say how many papers um uh that we sent it to um you know prior to i mean ultimately it belonged in journal of cancer policy and maybe um you know, maybe we learned a, a, a thing or two about you know, um, being overambitious. But um, so basically, it all started on Twitter and uh, or X, <laughs> and I I commented on um a, a physician um that that works at the uh, Huntsman Uni- uh, University, uh, in Utah, and I said you know because he was looking for some um papers that were speaking to access issues or you know the rems program and um i noticed actually i had read this npr article that um uh dave mitchell gave in maybe 2006 maybe 2010 um and we referenced it several times in the paper and basically that was all that was known he gave it you know this this profound um interview with npr and, and he's uh one of your
0: co-authors he's correct
1: he's the, he's the professor of law at correct uh, no he he's he's one of he's he's a cancer patient okay um, oh, that
0: okay gotcha all yeah. right
1: so so dave Mitchell. so we reached out to him and well so so i commented on manny's uh um you know the uh, twitter comment and then um zara who's also on the paper um you know uh commented on as well and i said maybe we should write this paper and then i went off X for a little bit. And uh, then I, you know, eight hours later um, I have, you know, 17 messages in my DMs, like, you know, Hey, like let's, let's actually do this. Um, And I think the only part of the paper that didn't uh, change, um, you know, throughout the, throughout the time that we wrote it um, was the title. Um, And it was, I actually, my reply was the story of the development of generic you know, lenalidomide, how one company thwarted that wax hatchman act to generate billions of dollars in revenue. And actually like, that was my reply. And like, you know, it was like fire emojis. So, um, so, <laughs> so we, and we reached out to Dave Mitchell, um, and, and we got some, so actually the, um, uh, Daniel, um, who's a law professor actually was, Sort of a happenstance connection. We got some um, feedback from peer review that was a little bit over my head, um, and Manny told me, "Well, you know, I know this uh, professor. He just did an FDA, you know, law internship. He's a MD JD, um, and I think he would be perfect for this. You know, to to res- you know respond to this um, reviewer comment. And uh, at the, you know, I I I was thinking like, well, oh, it's, it's my paper." Um, but I, 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 went against my intuition and it turns out that he, he definitely increased the quality of the paper. And he basically took a look at the whole thing, uh, he revised several steps and then uh, he responded to the peer review. So that's how it all came together.
0: Well, that's, that's a wonderful story. Um, I I've been, uh, you know, lamenting what has happened to, to X, uh, over the last year, I I I've had wonderful Wonderfully curated feed that I, I really loved and found a lot of meaningful connections. Um, I, I have a similar project I'm working on that started almost the exact same way, um, based on a, a reply to uh, to a an X, a, a, to a tweet, <laughs> to a tweet. Um, so that's that's wonderful to hear. Um, and we'll have a link to the paper uh, in the show notes. And, and everyone we've talked about or that that Ryan's talked about, um, their their um, their Twitter handles uh, are in the paper. Um, which is nice to see. So you guys can find them and follow them as well. Uh, so Ryan, thank you so much uh, for, for joining us and, and for writing this paper and, and uh, you know, tweeting about it, getting it all started. I uh, learned a lot from it and uh, that's our show this week. And Ryan, how do we end every episode? We say. This matter.